Hello and welcome to The Beautiful Game, a series exploring personal improvement and resiliency through interviews with soccer coaches from around the world. Beautiful Game is brought to you by Weasels FC, a brand for the tenacious, quick-witted, and occasionally underestimated. I am your host, Tony Niccolo. Join me as we learn to live, work, and play better with more confidence, resilience, and success. So here today with Jay Demerit, former professional player. Some of you may have heard his story through the Rise and Shine movie, but it's a story of continuous improvement. Jay, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Nice to be here. Share a little bit of your story for those of us who haven't heard it yet. Sure. You know, the fact that people ask you to make a movie about your story is always an interesting one. But what they convinced me was that it was more or less how I got there, which is where the real story is. And that's... um, You know, I guess the real adversity piece that goes on with, uh, you know, again, I was a kid from Green Bay, Wisconsin. I grew up in a community where there was a professional team, which was great because it started to learn some of the values that come with athletes. You know, Brett Favre was our hero. Shannon Sharp was our heroes. And, you know, these are guys that worked hard. They had fun doing it. They loved their community. They enriched themselves in that community. And, you know, but for me, football was that but not soccer. So it's kind of crazy within my story to choose that sport. But I was a three-sport athlete in high school, so I come from the multi-sport background. I played basketball in the winters, ran track in the spring. My dad was the track coach at our high school for 38 years. I come from a track family. Grandpas and grandmas in the track hall of fame in Wisconsin. And I just grew up around sports. My dad was coached. My mom was a coach. My grandpas and grandmas were coaches. So I was just always around that kind of sporting environment. Most of them came along with not only coaching, but with physical education. So I had a lot of gym teachers. I come from a linear lineage of, of gym teachers in my world. But again, you know, I came from an educator background. So a lot of it was learning processes and coaching and asking why you feel this way or what happened after that loss or, you know, being accountable for, for, for performances, I guess. And so those types of things were built into me. And I got an opportunity to go to Illinois, Chicago, down at NCAA Division One school in Chicago. I only had one scholarship on the table, and that was from UW-Green Bay, which is, again, the same conference as Illinois, Chicago. It's a small Division One school, so you're going to get a step up. You know, for me, it was something I was excited about, but I also didn't want to be, you know, the big fish in the small pond in Green Bay, so I decided to go to the big city, and I knew that Chicago had a great reputation of local guys that were, you know, again, our mutual friend Derek Shanahan, he was Gatorade High School Player of the Year, and he went to Stanford. Stanford as a freshman, but his best buddies down in Illinois all went to UIC. And so those are the kind of caliber guys I was playing with. But in a way, that was, for me, part of the challenge is to uh, test yourself against better people. And that's certainly what happened. I had a good college career. I went as a forward, left as a defender, changed positions my first season. It was the best decision I ever made. I became a much better defender than I ever would have been a goal scorer. So those types of things really helped my journey. But then my journey after college was basically over. I didn't get drafted. I was undrafted. I didn't really have too many opportunities to play in the States. Just then I played with a kid in Chicago in my last year at university. He was English, went back to live with his mom in London and asked if I wanted to come with. And so I finished my school. I finished design school at UIC in 2002 and packed my bags and moved with basically, you know, 1500 bucks that I had saved up from working at bars and landscape artists and, you know, all this other kind of stuff I was doing in Chicago to save money. And 
moved to England and I was living in an attic in a five person family home and uh, trying to go for runs and playing in the 12th division of the UK soccer pyramid. So you can see what I was up against. But uh, within a year of sleeping in attic and playing in those divisions, I started to work my way up and got a trial with Watford. And Watford was a first division team. So that's just under the Premier League in England at the time. Made the team, ended up playing 30 games in my first season. Second season, we got promoted to the Premier League and I was the guy that scored the first goal of the championship final that got us there. So there I was at an unknown American and I'd just uh, gotten a man of the match in front of 80,000 people people at the Millennium Stadium in Cardiff because Watford was going to the Premier League. And that kind of put me on this weird trajectory to be like, I was one of only eight Americans in the Premier League at the time and no one in America had ever heard of me. So it was kind of one of those things where I got thrust into this limelight, but I was ready for it because of all this humility that I had built up because of this work ethic that I had been building through years behind the ball. You know what I mean? And in this, uh, out there on this journey by myself. And then once I got there, I stayed there and ended up refocusing and being a Premier League player and ended up being captain of Watford, first American captain ever for the club. That got me in the limelight for the World Cup program. So I got to play in the World Cup in 2010 for the U.S. national team played every minute of that World Cup. And then from there, I wanted a different challenge. And I'd never, based on my story, I'd never played professionally in America before. And I had friends and families that watched and supported me the whole way. So I, you know, towards the end of my career, I was really excited to get back. And that's when the Vancouver Whitecaps came calling in 2011, just after the World Cup in 2010. And they basically said, hey, we're starting this new MLS franchise. And we want you to be the first signing. So for me, as a leader, it was something that was a brand new challenge for me to be the first signing of an actual franchise. And, and to be that kind of leadership pillar, I suppose, was awesome. It was extremely difficult in our first season. Coming for as a World Cup player to an expansion franchise captain was very difficult. We can talk about what that was later, but I played four years as the captain of the Whitecaps in the MLS and finished my career in 2014. Married a Canadian Olympian. We have a three-year-old son named Oaks. And now I do a wealth of creative projects, basically with the design background that I have. And then with the soccer side, I've started a uh, youth program called Captain's Camps. And also my wife and I have a charity called the Rise and Shine Foundation, where we do a lot of work in the education programs and, and also just creating experiences for young people to become more well-rounded and better versions of themselves. So we create that programming and stay very busy now. When you were at Watford, you ended up being named the captain. I've been back to the stadium and was picking up tickets that you had left for me and told folks, the people helping find the tickets were like, no, 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 they're from Jay Demerit. And then everyone who's waiting in the room lets out a little cheer <laughs> because even though it was only the first goal in that championship game, it was the only goal that mattered because you didn't get scored on. So it was the match winner that got you into the Premier League. It was, yeah. You know, very rarely does that happen to defenders. Again, I was a defender and I scored the goal, but then we kept a clean sheet. So as a double-edged sword, I got to be, I have the glass, you know, encased ball in my, for the man of the match. And it, it's, uh, you know, I'll remember that for the rest of my life. You know, it was one of the greatest experiences I've ever had is standing in the middle of that field and seeing my parents in the stands. And, you know, because for me, it was the journey. And that journey lasted for three, four years before that moment. And a lot of it was, again, not pleasant. And again, a lot of it was sacrifice. A lot of it was doing things that were out of my comfort zone. And a lot of it was just taking things on the chin because that's part of a long journey and being open to that. And I'll just remember that because sometimes the work's all worth it. Well, even at Watford, it wasn't all easy. You ended up being named the captain that next season. And then you were vice captain and had to sort of rotate through the captainship with a couple of other players. And then ultimately, somebody else was named the captain. That must have been hard. It was, but looking back on it, 
people talk about ego all the time and, and it was an ego play as far as how I could have been upset about it. I do. I wasn't playing very well. The terminology for those environments is called, they say like the armband's a bit too heavy. Again, I was named captain of the club after only playing professionally for three years. So I wasn't, I wasn't quite ready for it. I thought I was and AD Boothroyd thought I was, but again, I played my best soccer there in our premiership season. It was because I had other leaders around me and all I had to do was my job. And even on the international stage, that was always the greatest part about it for me. It was the easiest games I had because that's all I had to do was defend ex-players. But that was my first taste in leadership and what it meant. And it was a great learning experience for me as well. To understand what accountability was, to wear an armband, to be a leader of men is is a difficult task. And because you can't just play well, you have to lead. And if you're not, if you're leading too much and not worrying about what your job is, then you don't play well. So it is this kind of two pillared process. And I didn't get that right my first season. So yeah, we had a different guy lead us out towards the center. And the next season I regained the captaincy and got it back and finished that season and then left. And I had a crazy season. That was a year I had a transplant surgery with a corneal replacement just before the World Cup. And that was a, 2010 was a crazy year, but uh, either way, great from you know, your own experience and to go through those types of things and get a greater understanding of what leadership is, what team dynamics are, what uh, hard conversations are like. It was great for me. And, you know, and then to come to Vancouver and have that leadership in my locker, so to speak, was good because we needed it our first season. <laughs> That's for sure. Oh, well, I don't know if you went on Saturday, but uh, might still need it. You know, I think one of the things that maybe you've learned along the way, because I've heard you talk about it in other places, is really around sort of performance and communication and making sure that in big moments, you're performing within your capabilities as one way of overcoming the sort of anxiety or emotions of a big moment. One of your sink or swim moments was sort of you had been in England for a few years and you got the opportunity to start in a friendly for Watford against Real Zaragoza. Talk about how you think about performance and communication and what it means to perform to the best of your abilities and understand that your own abilities are enough, that you don't have to be more than what you're capable of. That's always a really good question because we all have moments of this. For me, it was a game. For others, it's a job interview. For some, it's a promotion. For some, it's a change of career. We all have these moments where we're going to be tested. And the idea is, are you ready? And there's lots of different ways to get ready. For me, again, I had spent a year and a half sleeping on attic floors, going for runs every day in the rain, just trying to stay fit for this opportunity. And all of a sudden, I play in a friendly for my ninth division team against Watford. It just, again, opportunities have become very few when you're on the hard road. And when you're ready for those opportunities, then it doesn't matter how you get there, in all honesty. For me, it was something that I knew I'd have to go through. Again, now I'm a year and a half into my journey of sleeping on floors and going, is this actually what I'm supposed to be doing? Or is this something that I, I actually really want anymore? And you know, people don't believe me anymore and blah, 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 blah. And, and that's all common. And I knew that. So of course that wasn't my answer, but in the end it's, oh, hey, you should come and train with us for preseason because we're playing against Watford in a friendly. Maybe you'll get a look. Okay, great. Opportunity. Check. I go in there. I'm fit. I spend preseason two and a half weeks in that club. I have a focus on this game. I'm asking good questions. I understand who their players might, they might be bringing. I'm ready for that. I'm ready for that game, even though it's in front of 100 people in a ninth division pitch. But either way, Watford's in town, and that's an opportunity for me to show that a year and a half of work wasn't dead. So I played in that game. And after that game, the coach came up to my coach and said, who's the blonde kid at the back? Watford, again, opportunity side saying they didn't have a lot of money. They had come up from the Premier League in 2000 and uh, spent a bunch of money and lost that money very easily by going right back down to the relegation. They almost 
lost the club. So they were like, okay, we don't have any money for the next five years, blah, blah, blah. So they didn't have money to buy other players. So they needed a walk-on. They needed somebody they could take a chance on that they didn't have to pay for. And then again, I was able to play against the first team, play very well and get an opportunity to get a tryout. And then in England, generally tryouts are two weeks long, play for the reserve team. The reserve team is like the second team. So, you know, you'll have 20, 25 guys that are in and out of the team, the subs, the young guys, those types of things. And then there's the reserve team. So this is another 20 to 25 guys, younger players, player development kids, you know, teenagers, 16, 17, 18s, and then guys that don't really play. So these are guys that aren't, they might make the subs bench, but they're not starters. And then they play in their own separate league against other teams within the area. You know, and again, so that means that second guys can stay fit and they can stay sharp. And and there's enough players within each professional team that they can actually create a sustainable league. And it's all a good opportunity, too, for young guys to come through, for guys that are injured to start making, you know, their fitness recoveries and stuff like that. So it works really well. And when you're on trial, that's where I got my game. So I played in two reserve games. And they called me up and after those games and the coach says, hey, come in my office for a second. He's like, hey, man, I've heard you were doing good in these reserve games. We have one final friendly tomorrow against Real Zaragoza. It's a Spanish team, first division team in Spain in La Liga. It'll be at the stadium. So the stadium will be packed. Should be fun. Come tomorrow. We'll try to get you involved. So I'm thinking, okay, I'll get two minutes or whatever, or maybe I'll get to sit on the bench, you know, whatever. I didn't know because he didn't tell me. And I walked into the locker room and I was on the whiteboards in the starting lineup and with 10 other guys I'd never even trained with, let alone played with in any kind of game. And that's kind of the oh shit moment, like the, oh my God, like what's he doing? Like he didn't even tell me, you know, there's so many ways to go down the negative pile there and get into the wormhole and go, I'm not ready for this. And, uh, you know, kind of psych yourself out. Again, the whole point of this was this was to say, how do you get ready for those types of things? And the first one is to be prepared. And I had my freak out moment. I went to the toilet. I sat on the toilet with my head in my hands and was like, oh, all right, well, take a deep breath because this is why you slept on a floor for a year and a half. This is why you're running in the rain by yourself. This is why you've done the first step and gotten this locker room. So now what else do you need than this opportunity? So for me, it was a mind shift check because you naturally want to go the other way. You want to go like, oh, I'm preparing for the worst and I'm not going to make it. And it's much easier to psych yourself out than it is to psych yourself up. And for me, whenever I got in those situations, and those carried for the rest of my career, you know, from, you know, starting in the, at Old Trafford to playing in a World Cup. And I used to always do this thing on halftime, like right after the national anthems or right after like the introductions, handshakes. And I just, I'd kind of do this little spin move and I'd look around and then I'd give myself a little laugh and go like, I, you know, almost in a way, like, I can't believe I'm here, but I'm here. So let's go. You know, you know what I mean? And I get to be the one to do that. And I think when I used to walk out of the tunnel, again, you're looking at guys like Ronaldo or Steven Gerrard and you're going, oh my God, like these guys are the best players in the world. Like they're going to smoke me today. But in a way I'm going, I get to stand on this field right now. I get to be the one to hear my national anthem. I get to be the one to stand out here and challenge that idea. So, you know, make the most of it. That was always changing that negative energy or ways that you could go down one path into like, I get to be the person to do this. I get to be the person that gets to challenge myself against Ronaldo today. I get to be the one to stand here with my nation's colors on and represent my country. Like if that can't pump you up, then nothing will. And and I always tried to use that energy, that pump up to say, all right, I'll give it my best shot. I'm going to go out there and compete against the best players in the world. But my preparation good. I have the athletic ability to compete with these guys. I've proven that many, many times over. Let's go again. And that was always kind of as my career progressed, that was always the mentality in the tunnel. Yeah. And you definitely use that energy as a player. You were never afraid of a hard tackle. 
but you know, you've at least now post playing career, you've admitted having anxiety and negative thoughts, but that you've got skills to deal with them, but you don't pretend that they don't happen. When you were playing, was it tough to be resilient instead of just focus on mental toughness and sort of mental acuity, particularly when you were sort of known as a tough player? Mm -hmm. The physicality of the game is something that is also a prerequisite. And I think, you know, again, that was built on my skill set. I wasn't the most technical player. I knew what I was good at. And again, that Rolodex of how to find the best versions of ourselves, both as people and as players, is different. Process is the same. How you get to that answer is the same. In my experience, it's by experiencing and it's by learning more about yourself, by putting yourself through certain things, you know, both mentally and physically and beep taps. Can I keep up with that winger today? I know he scores like in the 13s in the bleep test. And if I can keep with him, I'll do it. So it's just every day was a series of challenges of me testing myself of where I was, whether it's a physical side like that in your progressing records of beep tests and you're staying with guys that are 10 years younger than you and because you think you can, or at least you want to try. But then when you do, you're like, okay, I am here. You know, there's ways that you can gain confidence throughout the process. But I think the other thing is, like you say, and just admitting that these things are real. You know, I think a lot of the athletes get into problems now because it is an ego play and they get caught in this vortex where, you know, they're not allowed to feel pain. They're not allowed to feel hurt. They're not allowed to be upset because they got dropped by the manager for the game. When of course they can, you know what I mean? We're people too. You know, we have feelings, we have egos, and most of them are quite inflated. So they're even harder to bring down in all honesty. You know, these types of things aren't, you know, they're not abnormal. They're actually more normal than anyone would ever expect. And I think the good thing is, is that people are starting to recognize that and understand and big players like Derek Rose and all these other players are coming out and saying, hey, listen, we have mental health issues too. Or at least we deal with them or at least we want to start talking about them more. And I think that that's important. I think I naturally always did that. Uh, again, maybe because I've always been asked my whole life, like, so what's up? How did, what do you think about that performance? And, you know, again, because my parents were coaches and because I was in those environments and, you know, but a lot of people can't and well, a lot of people haven't been. Your parents were coaches who knew you as more than a player too. Yeah. I mean, they had to because they were your parents. They might be the kind of coaches that do that anyway. Yeah. But in your case, they always well, nowadays would have had well, to. Right? Parents aren't really allowed to have opinions either because now it's all academy programs. So it's like, well, hey guys, you have to be the parents at home. But when it comes to sport, leave that to us. And it's just like, there's a gray area within there that it needs to live too. And I think we've gone the other way where now the parental influence who actually know these kids much better than the coaches do. Uh, well, hopefully they do. You know, that is also part of it too. And I think putting more of a spotlight on those types of things and putting more spotlight on the process themselves is a way that I would, and I do teach resilience. It's just, you don't have to live it. You just got to hear from a guy that's been playing in a world cup, what it's like to feel dropped or booed in front of your own fans or, you know, being told by your mentor system that you're not good enough. What else does a kid need to know to know that if he did it and he came out and went and played for Canada, why can't I? And I guess that for me in the programming that I teach, it's that. It's not necessarily I got to go teach that kid adversity because that's really hard to do because it just happens by experiencing. But if they can walk a half a mile in our shoes based on our experiences at a high level, then they can maybe believe that it might happen to them. And then they can be ready for it when it actually happens. And that goes down back to the preparation. That goes back to being ready for these so-and-so called blips in the road because they might not happen. As far as I'm concerned, they're guaranteed to. It's just a matter of when. And so that's part of the transition that you've made from player to coach with captain's camps. And as a parent, I've seen the Instagram videos. I have no doubt Oaks is going to be an athlete. <laughs> I think so. I think so. I'm yeah. not sure what sport yet, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Formula, know Formula One, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe. <laughs> in captain's camps and in the Rise and Shine Foundation in general, the goal is to promote both skills for success in sport and 
life skills. So how do you do that in how long are the programs? A week, two weeks? Yeah, they're a four-day program. So they're a Monday to Thursday in the summers. Yeah. I'm doing some satellite camps now where I'm taking the curriculum and I'm going to other communities now. Those can be one-day camps yeah. to four-day camps yeah. as well. We uh, mainly work through the one-day to four-day programs. So how do you accomplish that in teaching life skills and the skills that they need to succeed one, in sport one, in, one in wheel, that amount of time? Uh, one wheel is the skill set. There's two wheels. One is the skill set. The other is the mindset. And the skill set is always taught by professionals. So if I run a soccer camp, I will bring in one other professional that has played pro. So again, now you're getting two people that have played at the highest level and so and so called made it, right? So the coaches had to play pro in that field. You know, I'm working on our first DJ camp for the summer because I want this to be a youth program, not a soccer camp. Mm. So we're opening already up to other curriculum. And now we got, you know, guys from the Funk Hunters and guys that play the biggest music festivals in the world that are coming as the coaches. And then now I move to the mentorship side. And that's the other side. The other 50% wheel is the mentorship side. And these are professionals at something else and that come to the property every day. Or if it's a day camp, they'll come, we'll do three breaks and it's a nine to five session. We'll train twice a day with the pros that play pro. And then in between, we're going to train with mentors that are professional at something else. And that person has 20 minutes to give a talk on why their life is awesome and how they've created their own successes. Because again, these are very highly successful people that have probably been through a lot to create their success because anyone that's been successful will know that that's usually the process. So they share their stories, they share their experiences, they say their highs, they share their lows. And then we try to practice what they preach. You know, if it's a designer, we'll design something. If it's a chef, we'll cook something. If it's a finance person, we'll do a quick hit in a financial lesson. So these kids can start working with numbers or budgets or we'll try to have fun. You know, again, with my creative background, it's not about being boring and putting the kids through things that they don't want to do. It's about creating a curriculum that will enrich them by doing things that they actually want to do and around people that will inspire them to do so. And so that's what we do. And the mentor will bring some kind of lesson. And then from there, there's nutrition lessons at every meal. So the kids are interactive in how they cook or make smoothies with all these natural ingredients where they learn about what's in each of those ingredients and put it in their smoothie themselves. And, you know, for me, it's about creating a well-rounded curriculum where the kids come first. It's not about making the white caps or signing for a Premier League team. It's about creating the best version of yourself. And if that vehicle becomes a sport, then great, good for you. And if not, then hopefully within your curriculum or your learning process, you remember the finance dude that taught you about budgeting and was like, hey, I actually like that. I think I'm going to check out this school of finance. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, here's my passion. That's right. I was never going to be a soccer player anyway. And that's, I think, one of our common misconceptions is that we create youth programs so they can be LeBron James and Tiger Woods and Lionel Messi when really we're now losing the real focus of what youth programs are about. And that's development and mentality and communication and teamwork and all these great things that come along with youth programs. And I think, again, the priorities have been skewed now to wins, successes, scholarships, X amount things, again, mainly based on a monetary value instead of uh, personality or mentality that we can build through curriculums or introducing them to people with high performance mindsets to go, hey, you can have one too. This is how you do it. This is my experience. Now, what's your experience? Now you go and do it. And if we can create a platform for them to learn and a platform for them to be themselves, then for me, we're doing all we can do because in the end, it's up to them and not up to us. So have you started hearing from players or parents or mentors about how kids are doing after the camps, either with, yeah, you know, yeah. winning more or being more productive or happier or... Yeah. Oh yeah. The emails is what makes me keep going in all honesty. You know, youth programs aren't easy. 
but for me, it's way more important to be a part of it than to sit on the sidelines and talk about it. So the emails I get on a yearly basis from parents or even kids that will come back to me and say, hey, I'm doing this. You know, I just ran a 10K and I, all my training was based on doing things in the dark and making sure that I was ready when it came. And I ran two minutes faster than I wanted to run. And, you know, for me, that's what it's all about. That's the kind of value that I truly get. You know, I haven't made a dime. I've lost so much, so much money on this camp, but yeah. that's not the point. For me, there's so much value in it that it's about making sure that it works. If you're going to create programs, they should work, not just do them for your own benefit. The good thing about the program, I mean, this will be our third year of running the full curriculum, both boys and girls, and it's working. So yeah, we'll keep going. So let's, in a way, talk about the curriculum a little bit. What's in the curriculum to, and your opinion around how a player or a person can be more productive or be better or achieve the goals that they want? Well, I guess the first thing is just to tighten the screw on what makes you tick. You know, I, I say, where do you find your energy from? And that's your passions, basically. And, and if you don't know or if you don't have any passions and you need to start doing more. And I think people find their passions behind their thumbs on a screen pretty easily because it's all there. But... In order to actually find them in a way that you're going to know, for me, is all about experience and doing those things. So if you think you like food or what's in it, then you should probably be cooking or learning about it more or finding what ingredients are there. Or if it's a someone that loves computers and coding, then, you know, again, last year we had the creative director for FIFA 19 that works at EA Sports come out and talk to the kids about coding and, and how he creates the game and the narratives and stuff like that. And, you know, that kind of stuff, like, what are you doing to live to your passions? Mm -hmm. And again, like, I always find that you're going to find more experience and therefore opportunity when you go out and do stuff. And the more you have on your plate, the more those opportunities seem to fall into place. And that's where the well-roundedness comes in and that's where the mentorship comes in. So again, to answer your question, another wheel of that is the mentorship. And, you know, you don't have to have a world-class mentorship program. You'll know people within your community, your parents' friends, your friends' friends, people you follow on social media that you can ask a question that are very open with how they help people or, you know, like start asking questions. If you're interested, then ask. And that's a really good way to start tightening the screw on who you are and what you like. And once you build that foundation, again, your driver, that's what I call it. Once you find your driver, then you can drive anywhere you want. On that journey, there are going to be some potholes and detours. That's so, guaranteed. Yeah. So how can a player be more resilient? Step one, expect them, but don't wait for them, I guess is the first piece of advice is know they're coming because they will. And again, adversity isn't one thing. It's a lot of things, especially if you're a player. There's a million ways you can create adversity, injuries, you can not have your health, you could not get picked, you could have a coach that you know, might not like you. And you're like, oh God, how am I going to get off? Do you either find a team or do you create adversity within your own setup and go... I'm going to take this as an adversity. I'm going to take this as a, okay, how can I ask this coach now that's not picking me how I can get picked? How can I get out of my comfort zone to do things that will require me to get picked in my workplace rather than just sitting on the fence and going, my coach is a jerk and he doesn't like me. You know what I mean? Like, I think when you expect those things, when you willingly go through the process and pain or struggle or whatever word you want to use to get through those experiences, you'll find an answer one way or the other about yourself. And when that happens, and again, now you're down the path of experience and therefore finding a better experience of who you actually are and who your driver is and what your driver is. And, and again, only going through that will teach you that. And I think we're pulling the pin a little bit early these days as far as the developmental stage is going. We're not letting them go through that. Again, parents are pulling the kids out of the program and going, oh, well, we're just going to go to this one because he'll start on that team. Mm -hmm. but not knowing that their son or daughter is actually just going to be the player that they've always been because they haven't learned anything. And that's not always the right move. Sometimes it is, though. 
But again, that's up to the support systems to decide. And that's, again, hopefully being driven by the kid themselves, Mm -hmm. not by the other influences. And that, again, is an interesting mix to get right, but certainly something that you should put attention on. I want to talk about how successful players turn ideas into action. You know, one of your suggestions around improving is really getting started, right? And taking action. There's lots of discussion and sort of more popularity around mindfulness and meditation and meditation apps these days. And whether or not that those things are useful, at some point, you've got to turn your ideas into results and potentially better, at least better habits. How do you actually take those ideas and your mental skills and turn that into results in some form in your life, whether that's more wins or at least draws or less goals, or you're getting the promotion that you want. Again, it goes back down to just starting, just doing something, you know, start your path. From there, I think it's a couple different things. One is always trying to almost micromanage a goal setting process of what's your craziest goal, what's your least crazy goal, and how do I get to each one of those mm-hmm. things? And understand your process. I think when you understand the process and what it's gonna take to get there, aid the less pressure that you put on yourself, Because when you understand how long that process can be, you're like, okay, well, maybe that is not manageable right now. I think right now, what's manageable? Oh, I can can apply for 10 different jobs right now. I know that. So why don't I do that? And then from there, that answer starts to become more clear if it's, you know, again, this is the job finding journey or whatever, but it's the same goal as a player. It's like, okay, I remember this conversation very clearly. And I say it a lot at the bonfire talks that we give the kids. And this was when I was a 30 year old captain and our first draft pick for the Whitecaps was a 17 year old kid named Omar Salgado. And as a 30 year old, and this is why I do mixed age groups camps. And this is the story that I say from the beginning of why young kids can work with older kids. And that's when I was 30 and a captain of the Whitecaps, my first person I was supposed to work with was 17 years old and a kid that had never played at the professional level. So I had to learn how to work with that person, even in the workplace, even at the highest level, you have to do that. Mm -hmm. And if you as a 15 year old can't work with a 13 year old, then you might have problems in your future. You know what I mean? So to set the mindset early, but to understand the process is interesting. And I remember sitting on the bus with Omar one time we were coming home from Seattle. He hadn't really played. He had been having foot injuries and things like that. So he wasn't in a great mental state anyway. And he had just been in the U17 world cup the year before. And Basically, he, I look at his phone and he's getting a call and I said, aren't you going to answer that? And he said, no. And I said, well, who was it? He said, oh, it was my dad. I just don't, I'll talk to him later. And I said, oh, why, why don't you answer your phone call to your dad? You know what I mean? And he's like, well, he'll probably just tell me that I suck. Or like, and I'm like, do you think you suck? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, well, maybe this is part of the problem too. Hmm. I'm like, where did you see yourself when you got here? And he started talking about when he was at the U17 World Cup, he heard that there was Arsenal scouts in the stands. And I said, and this is where the process talk comes in. And I said, do you know the process of how you're going to get to Arsenal? Again, I had been in the UK, so I knew the system. I knew what scouts, I knew I was friends with scouts at the professional level over there. So I know the process. Again, part of the understanding. I said, do you know how you would even get to Arsenal? And he said, well, yeah, I mean, I play good in those tournaments and stuff like that. And I said, yes, international soccer is half of the wheel of what you need to accomplish. If you play well for your international team, you're going to do very well. You'll get yourself in opportunities anyway. But you are a club and you're the first signing of a club. You're the first draft pick of a club. What do you need to do first to do anything is you need to play for your team. Arsenal's not going to buy anybody that's on a subs bench or that mm-hmm. can't make the subs bench. So first manageable goal is play. Don't worry about scoring. Don't worry about crossing. Don't worry about Arsenal because the first thing you have to do is play. Now, once you start playing, can you play 15 games in a row? That's the next goal. Once you start playing 15 games in a row and you're considered a regular, you will maybe start to be in the conversation of some going, look, hey, maybe we should go look at young Salgado. He's starting to play now. Mm-hmm. 
to step one, right? Yeah. yeah. But then once he starts to play, now step two is now he's got five assists in six games. He's got a goal. So he's got five assists and one goal as a winger. That's what we look for. Again, know what your position requires at the highest level. If you're not crossing and finishing as a winger, then you're probably not going to make Arsenal, right? So how many crosses have you had this season? How many of those have been to somebody's head or somebody's foot? How many of those have actually turned into assists? If you're playing on the wing, how many defensive stops do you have? Do you even know that you need defensive stops as a winger in a modern day game? Well, you probably should if you understand the process of how you're going to get to Arsenal. Mm -hmm. So the whole idea is I kind of just broke it down to him and say, okay, well, each step of the process is this, 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 and this. But if you can't start, if you're coming home on the bus and not making the subs bench, Arsenal shouldn't even be in your thought process. So I think managing thought process and manageable goals throughout the process of how to get there is the key to start. That's a great answer and sort of to me makes it obvious how you would translate those skills into life and into business but you're translating them both with captain's camps and then you've also you've started a company called portmanteau stereo what have you taken from the game or your coaching that you're using in business <laughs> not business knowledge i know that oh <laughs> 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 i know i mean i know you're a startup guy too so you know it's it's i knew i'd love startups but i also knew i'd hate them Startups are very much just like anything, just like a player that wants to make it pro, you know, like you learn very quickly that you don't know much. For me as an entrepreneur and a creator, it's nice to create, you know, that's what drives me. You know, I talk about my own drivers, creating is what drives me. And not only as a design background and have a degree in product design, but, you know, improvement is a teamwork you know, mainstay. So, you know, I look at that of like saying, okay, if I have a design mindset, even on a team environment, where can I start? What can I control? Once I'm in user case scenario, how can I evolve it? How can I make changes? How can I, you know, there are no wrong answers in design. It's just better answers. And for me, that's whether I was trying to make a team or whether I'm now trying to make a business successful, you know, again, I'm learning more and more what my lane is in a business level. I'm not a CEO. I'm not someone that leads financial discussions. I lead idea discussions. I lead big vision ideas, or I lead the creative process of how we're going to get there. And then from there, it's like, I don't know anything about certain things in the business. But when you're a startup guy, you have to know all these things because you don't have anyone else to do them. So now we're back down to making mistakes. Now we're back into losing money. Now we're back into all sorts of things that I didn't know about myself until you started to do the process. Mm -hmm. And that's just like anything. So now I'm four years into being an entrepreneur and I've had some projects that have been great, especially investments or, or things like that. And then some that have lost those investments in, you know, the other projects. So, you know, just like anything, you know, I try to take it with a grain of salt and say, at least I'm out here trying and doing, and that helps me sleep at night. Some are working and some aren't. But again, what I knew about entrepreneurship was that and reading other people's stories and understanding certain things that Steve Jobs had to go through or Bill Gates had to go through. And, and I'm by no means ever comparing myself to those guys. But I'm saying their processes were just the same as mine to make a Premier League team. You know, mm -hmm. and we all have to go through that. We all have to understand it. And we all can't take it so seriously. You know, like I don't take it that seriously. And at the end of the day, I have a great support system. I have a great family. I have people that I want on my side and give me energy every day, whether I'm a successful businessman or not. And I try to keep things into perspective. And that kind of thing for me has always been the driver, again, about who I am, is always understand where you came from and what you've done before you start judging yourself of who you're supposed to be. And I think that always gives me the kind of confidence to just take a step back, take a breath and go, okay, now what's the next move and what can I control? And then get back to that mindset of mm -hmm. the process of how that works. And like you said, that transfer from being an athlete to a business person isn't actually that different. And so in that context, thinking of a support system and people that you want to be around, 
who's the coach that taught you resiliency or other mental skills and, and encouraged it along the way? There's a couple. I would say of the many coaches that I've had, the first one that taught me about like toughness and mentality is a guy, a former Chicago Sting NASL player named Brett Hall, uh, Mongolian. He was an orphan. He was just the toughest guy in the room. He wouldn't care if you were the best player or the worst player, if you weren't given your all in training and then you wouldn't be out there. And he would embarrass guys. He'd, you know, he had two guys. I was telling the story actually with Mike McKee, who's who, former MLS MVP who played for Brett too in Chicago. Uh, he was a Chicago kid. So he grew up there and we were just sharing Brett's stories this week, you know, on social media. And he was saying, you know, he was an all-star forward for him. They were winning four zero and he missed his runner to go four one down. But he was like, I didn't care. I'd scored a couple of the goals or whatever. And Brett made him go on his hands and knees and walk across the field on his hands and knees to understand. And you can't do that now. But in a way, there's ways that you can show toughness and show that you're not, I guess, that what that creates is a built-in humility. And I think humility takes things a long way when you live, in, especially in a team environment. And so Brett taught me toughness and humility. A.D. Boothroyd, our manager that got us promoted to the Premier League, he taught me about belief in the power of a group togetherness. I call it the circle mentality. Anyone that had to do with game day activations, the day after the game, we'd come in for our cool down. Anyone that had to be in the game from the kit men that set out our socks and folded our jerseys to the assistants, to the medical staff, to the subs, to the anyone that had to do with game day activations was in this circle. It was just a level of accountability that everyone could do what they could be capable of on a game day. And some days were hard. Some days, oh, you know, we watch the goals and we watch whatever. Our sports psychologist gets us pumped up about playing Chelsea in three days and about how to create our better mindset. And, you know, every day that circle had created a new form of life. But in a way, it made the circle much stronger. And there were days where guys were having fights or days where we were, you know, laughing our heads off. There were days where, you know, we were serious. There were days where we felt like we were never going to win another game in our lives because the Premier League's tough. And Either way, that circle got stronger. And in the end, you know, that's what got us promoted. Mm -hmm. And, you know, anyone that watched that game when we beat Leeds 3-0, like they didn't have a chance. They didn't have a sniff the whole game. But that was the mentality that we had built through eight months of season and being in that circle to know that on a game day like that, when it all mattered. And again, this is going back to your original point. Like, how do you perform on that day? And it's because we were a circle that no one could penetrate. We were a circle that was doing everything required to make sure that that circle won on that day. But that was a whole year of prep. That was a whole year of hard conversations. It was a whole year of understanding the process and enjoying it along the way. And that's how you get to that high performance mindset and get victories like that. And AD Boothroyd taught me that process. So, you know, I use that every day now. Who's a coach that you'd like to talk to about development and continuous improvement? And what would you ask? I think in the modern day game, I would say, I mean, Alex Ferguson for sure, because he's part of the old school mentality. Pep Guardiola now, because he's part of the new school mentality. I would love to see the opposite versions of why. You know, I think both those guys would have a very interesting version of why. And then I think Jurgen Klopp would be really interesting as well, because I'm more of that kind of spirit. It doesn't seem like he takes things too seriously at times. Of course he does. You can see that side of him too. But I like a guy that's charismatic. I like a guy that makes fun of it. I like a guy that does weird stuff. And you could tell he uses his brain a lot creatively. That's the kind of guy I'd like to sit down for a coffee with. How do you keep a smile on your face? How do you turn a locker room full of 25 guys from different countries into a laughable place? You know what I mean? That kind of stuff for me is what I'd ask him. Cool. Thanks for taking the time, Jay. Pleasure. Really, really appreciate Anytime. having you. Thanks. Thank you for joining us today on The Beautiful Game. We hope you also have some new ideas and inspiration to live, work, and play better. Please subscribe to get future episodes. And you can join the conversation with your host, Tony Niccolo, 
on Twitter at WeaselsFC. FC.